0: Wednesday, July 6th, 2011. <laughs> yes, I'm back in the studio, kind of. I literally just got in from uh, Colorado. I drove. I feel like something the cat drug in. mm Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. uh, Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. Now, like I just said at the, the top of the program, um i ju- literally just came into the studio uh, i i i um, i drove i spent in fact i spent the uh, 4th of july holiday uh traveling to spending some time at and coming back from Estes park colorado where i was invited uh, to be one of the speakers for this year's uh 2011 free lutheran youth conference and uh the you know the uh, free lutheran uh, uh, church uh you know they have a youth director and they invited me to come out and speak to their their youths and uh it was a privilege to uh, be able to uh, preach the gospel to them I, that's really what you know for me that's the the exciting thing to do so it was exciting to go out there and to uh, to lecture for 2 days i i um I lecture on uh on uh, the 4th of July in the evening just before fireworks and then after and then uh, the next day uh, after playing a round of disc golf in the Colorado Rockies, which was loads of fun, uh, fantastic course there at the YMCA in Estes Park, um, I, uh, I, I lectured again for two more hours, and uh, and then afterwards got on the road, and so uh, I, I just literally got into Indianapolis, and uh, and so uh, what we're gonna do today? I'm not gonna do a full blown program today. We're gonna do our light edition today, um, and you're going, but, but 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 I I know I know I trust me. <laughs> If I were to try to pull off like a regular edition of Fighting for the Faith today, I, I'd probably end up slurring my words, and and I might even potentially fall asleep at the microphone. It's just one of those things that could potentially happen. So uh, what we're going to do today is uh, we're going to continue listening to uh, uh, sermons, uh, uh, well, actually we're going to hear another sermon in the Appears for Our Transgression sermon series that was uh, preached by Dr. Mark Dever of uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church there in Washington, D.C. And this is a fascinating uh, sermon that we're going to be listening to. Um, He's going to be preaching from Leviticus chapter 16, Leviticus chapter 16. And uh, he's going to be spending uh, quite a bit of time uh, telling us about the Day of Atonement and what this has to do with Jesus Christ being pierced for our transgressions, being punished By God, uh, the Father, uh, in our place. And so, fascinating uh, sermon we're going to be listening to. I know that you will enjoy it. So, without any further ado, here is uh, Dr. Mark Dever.
1: What if you're a ruler known as a good guy, but you don't take action against those people who aren't good guys? What does it mean to say, I oppose murder, but then refuse to punish murderers? What does it mean to bear responsibility to punish? Does anyone bear responsibility to punish? During the reign of one Roman emperor, it was said, It is indeed bad to live under a prince with whom nothing is permitted, but much worse to live under one by whom everything is allowed. Christians believe that all such authority is rooted in God himself. So we find King David's last words, recorded in 2 Samuel 23, When one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Part of that good authority must be enforcing at least the enforceable parts of what you understand to be good. And this responsibility, ultimately and fully, belongs, of course, to God. He alone is able, ultimately and fully, to fulfill this responsibility. But in limited ways, it is shared with parents and pastors, with judges and public officials, with bosses, with anyone entrusted with authority. So what happens when you or I do something bad? Well, if we're children, our parents may punish us for it. If we're adults, well, then maybe someone else. Maybe the punishment could come from our workplace or from the sheriff's office. Of course, this is where our atheist friends may sink into their grim confidence that there is... No one to right wrongs or reward rights. Whereas Christians hear echoes of the truth in the expectations that all naturally have of life, the atheist says that they are nothing more than reflections of our own groundless hopes and desires. And I suspect if it's a clever atheist, then you would tell us just to look back over our year that's just passed. And the hopes you had at the beginning... And how so many of them have come to naught. Right and wrong are constructed by a social construct, they would say. They're simply relationships of power. That's how they're talked about today. Moral and immoral are customs that may or may not be enforced. The cash value of atheism on this point is that we can sin and get away with it. But according to the Bible... What is our situation? What is God's responsibility in the face of wrongdoing? Well, it must be great given whom God is. He is more powerful, more knowledgeable, more right than any other authority. He is more able. He is more certain of who and of what merits punishment and more certain of what punishment it merits. At the center of this discussion for the Christian is quite a different reality than the mere believer in God perceives. At the center of the discussion of right and wrong, of punishment and rewards, for us, stands the cross of Christ. And all that flows from that, our understanding of reconciliation, of atonement, of forgiveness, of restoration... Christ's accomplishment on the cross is celebrated in a great profusion of images in the New Testament. Uh, there he redeemed those in bondage. He reconciled those alienated. He propitiated God's wrath. He satisfied his justice. There Christ defeated Satan and broke the power of death. And yet one image among this joyous proliferation is under attack today. Today. And as your pastor, I want to alert you to this. It is the idea that we are particularly considering, in fact, in this series of studies from Christmas to Easter. It's the idea of penal substitution. That is the idea that the penalty that we deserved, God gave to someone else. Another who did not deserve it, but who took it voluntarily for us. Now, this very idea, which is at the heart of the Christian message, is one that has long been denounced by non-Christians. For centuries, Christians have defended their message against those who have attacked it at this very point. About a century or two ago, however, these same objections began being raised by liberal Christians. And by liberal Christians, I don't mean Christians who vote on the left politically. No, I mean Christians who are liberal theologically in the sense of they don't really think the Bible is fully true. And so people who were not non-Christians but those who called themselves Christians began to attack this doctrine. And now, in the last few years, these objections have even been taken up by some who call themselves evangelical Christians. These objections against the idea of Christ's making atonement for us as a substitute must be answered. And thereby hangs the explanation for this series of sermons... That Michael and I are engaged in, Lord willing, from now till Easter. And yet our task isn't fundamentally a defensive one. We're not trying to negate these doubts and denials. We want to go around them and behind them and beneath them to the text of the Bible itself. What does the Bible, Old Testament and New, say about the idea of God's pardoning sinners? Of God's punishing for sin? of God using a substitute to do that. Is that merely a Western or mechanical or modern or overly legal view of Christ's work on the cross? Well, of course, today there are questions about the whole idea of retributive justice in the first place. All punishment is, should be restorative, people say. It's thought distasteful by some to have God involved in anything that would be uh, some kind of gross spiritual economics of substitution, one person taking another person's penalty, freeing the first person then from receiving their own just desserts. Here's what one prominent evangelical in England wrote just a few years ago. Quote, The fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he's not even committed Understandably, both people inside and outside of the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind, but borne by his son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and to refuse to repay evil with evil. End of quote. I just want to be clear, that was written not by a non-Christian assailing Christianity. That was written not by someone who uh, overtly denies the authority of Scripture. That was written by someone who repeatedly and for years has spoken at evangelical Christian conferences and has been known, well-known, perhaps the best-known Baptist minister in England. And that was his assessment of the Bible's teaching on the atonement of Christ. Now, as I say, this is no new objection. Faustus Socinus, one of the founders of modern-day Unitarianism, in 1578 put forward the objection that the doctrine of Christ's being substituted for us to receive our penalty would put God in violation of the teaching that we are to forgive those who wrong us. A kind of divine hypocrisy would ensue. The Bible, however, disagrees with that. In fact, Paul in the Epistle to the Romans stated specifically that God has a right to, and in fact should and does, act differently than we do in this matter. You want to follow this up later, afterwards? Romans chapter 12 is what you want to look at, verse 19 specifically, where he tells us not to take revenge. And he tells us not to take revenge because he says that wouldn't be like God to take revenge. He tells us not to take revenge specifically because he says God will take revenge. So because God will ensure that justice will be done, we, as individuals, do not need to take revenge. And then he goes on in chapter 13 to say that the function of retribution is shared in small part with the government, though it's denied to the individual. The individual Christian is called to forgive. What on earth is this sermon going to be like? This is just the introduction. (laughs) So, So is such substitution alien to the Bible? No. Covenantal substitution was already deep in the story of the Bible. Adam sinned, and he and his family and all of us have suffered the consequences. Each week in this series, we will see that this idea of penal substitution is no alien, artificial, foisted upon the Bible concept but is woven deeply into the narrative of Israel and the whole Bible. And that if you deny this, you cannot understand all of the most basic parts of the Bible. The Bible dissolves into nothing more than a reflection of things you like to think are true. If you want to hear the message of the Bible, you must understand this. In the Passover, we were considering last week, The idea of something suffering a penalty for the benefit of someone else was graphically displayed in the lamb slain for the deliverance of the firstborn of the households of Israel. Now in the wilderness, God makes this even clearer by putting another special day, this one not in the spring but in the fall, on the perpetual calendar of Israel. A day which would teach them about atonement, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. It's prescribed... In the Old Testament book of Leviticus, that's the third book in your Old Testament, chapter 16. That's found in the Bibles provided in the West Hall on page 113, and in the Bibles provided here in the main hall on page 121. And trust me, if you're not regularly here, you'll really be helped a lot if you open it up and follow along. It will give your mind something to do as I make comments specifically on the text. So while you're turning there, I'll just remind you that Leviticus is a book of laws and sacrifices that God gave the Israelites in the wilderness. When they had just been brought out of Egypt, they were on the way to the promised land. He gave them the laws because they reflected his own holy character. And then he gave them the sacrifices because he knew he wouldn't keep the laws. And this morning, we want to look at the chief sacrifice of all the sacrifices, the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. And there are really two points I want us to consider in this chapter. Two points. Number one, the relationship is the challenge. The relationship is the challenge. And number two, substitution is the solution. Substitution is the solution. And I pray that for each one of us today, as we consider this chapter together, our most important problem will become clear to us. And God's solution will become even more clear and will be embraced by us. First, then, the relationship is the challenge. Look at chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover what we need to begin here is by knowing that the Lord is holy that is he is completely good and right he is not like us he is sublimely perfectly pure He is in no way morally compromised ever. His very character defines what it means to be lawful and desirable and righteous, the true, the good, the beautiful. He is majestic and transcendent over all creation. He is glorious and sinless and unique. God expresses himself in his holy goodness and grace and wrath. Friends, that just something of the holiness of God. But you must begin by understanding the God we're speaking of of, is this God. If you've never read J.I. Packer's little book, Knowing God, it's a classic volume on helping us to meditate on God himself and what the Bible presents him to be like. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I would encourage you to read that. Anyway, there's no natural way for us to realize how unlike us God is. Well, this chapter begins with this holy God reaching out and communicating to Moses. You see the very first words in the chapter, the Lord spoke. That's why we have the services like we do here. We believe that the Bible is God's word to us. This is where our religion begins, with God speaking. We don't come up with our doctrine because we are religious scientists Inductively building up our knowledge, conducting religious experiment after religious experiment and positing theories. No, God is no theory. This God is really there and this God has spoken. If we're to understand the Bible, if we're to truly understand life, we must begin with this God. And see that he is a holy God. And see that this holy God has revealed himself to us. And it's exactly because God is so holy So not like us, that the scriptures are so important. Because it won't come to you and I naturally how we should relate to such a holy God. We cannot assume that the intuitions and hunches we have, theologically or morally, are correct. Thus, the importance of the scriptures. Anyway, here in this chapter, the Lord's instructions to Moses about the Day of Atonement are given. You see, that the problem was apparently kind of casual entry... Into uh, what's called here God's presence and the Lord wants to make sure that stops. there'd be no casual entrance into the presence of God The presence of God was symbolized here in the wilderness in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant It was a uh, well if, if you've seen anyway uh, It was a, a box In which uh, there were placed the two tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written and there were golden cherubim carved on a golden lid And it was put inside basically a two-room tent. The smaller room in the tent was called the Most Holy Place, the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And that's where God's presence was understood to specially be. And then there's a larger room outside that where sacrifices would be made. That was called the Holy Place. Well, apparently there had been no regulation at this point about going into that second and smaller room, the Most Holy Place. And there had been problems caused by this. Uh, That cloud you see mentioned there in verse 2 was the symbol of God's special presence. You'll see it throughout uh, the Exodus and this whole period in Israel's history. And yet, uh, this very place which was showing God's presence with his people, the very closeness, the proximity was the problem. Because the people were not holy. The people were unclean and impure. The people were fallen. They were sinful. Now you have to understand this. You have to understand the Holy God, but you also have to understand what the Bible teaches about our sinfulness in order to understand the Bible and really to understand your own life. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me just suggest to you that I am making the aggressive claim, friendly, aggressive claim, that you can't understand your own life without a concept of sin. I'll be standing at that door afterwards. I'd love to talk to you you got a few minutes. But you certainly won't understand this chapter if you don't understand that. You see, at the beginning, there's this reference to what had happened to Aaron's sons. Basically, back in chapter 10, at the beginning of chapter 10 of the book of Leviticus, they had had offered some, and I'll quote here from Leviticus 10, verse 1, unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. Well, what was that? I've just told you everything we know about it. It's not referred to anyplace else. It's not defined anyplace else. You now know as much as I know about it. All right? So, unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. That is, though, a good definition of sin, isn't it? Something contrary to the Lord's command? Doing something that we desire and we decide to do rather than what God has called us to do, what he wants us to do. Now, again, I wonder if you're here and you're not a Christian, if this is a surprising idea to you, that, that we Christians don't think people are basically good. We're not the ones who wander around with a hallmark card theology thinking, oh, if we just like, live like Christmas every day, then the world would be a great place. We're not the sort of pitiful optimists that the media predicts us as being, or presents us as being. We Christians are actually the ones who believe that everybody is at root sinful. We think that there's something broken. Augustine called it, We were all sort of curved in on ourselves. Something's wrong. That's not all there is to us. We also think we're all made in the image of God. But we understand that there's something not right. And that's why as Christians we have limited expectations of each other, of our government, of all kinds of structures that we're involved with. Brothers and sisters, this is a good thing to remember, especially as you may be thinking about New Year's resolutions. Know your Bible's theology. Understand yourself. Even as a Christian, you need to have expectations that are somewhat limited. I'm not saying don't shoot for the stars in some ways. Yes, that may be an appropriate thing for something to do, some decision you're making. But God has taught us in his word that we are those who are turned in on ourselves, that we are sinful. And he has, though, at the same time made us in his image, and he has redeemed us in Christ, and yet this world is still under the curse. We are still not home. God is still not finished. We want to try to be clear about that, even in the way we present the truth of the Christian scriptures here each week in this gathering. We are sinful. But anyway, you can see then how this problem arises that Leviticus 16 addresses. This relationship between a holy God and sinners is a challenge. And that's made even more clear in our passage when we realize that these deaths that are mentioned show the need For something to be done. Maybe for an atonement to be made. Paul writes in the New Testament in Romans 5 that the universality of death proves the universality of sin. That's his argument in Romans 5. From the Garden of Eden on, the result of sin has been death. Now the death of Aaron's sons was the last big thing that had happened in the book of Leviticus. And it's that that seems to set off this long series, if you look through the book, of God speaking about holiness. So if you were to turn back to chapter 10, you would see this incident takes place at the beginning of chapter 10. And then you see this phrase, the Lord said, there in chapter 10, verse 8. And again in 11, verse 1. And in 12, verse 1. And in 13, verse 1. And in 14, verse 1. And in 15, verse 1. What's happened, it seems like this event has caused teaching to be given by God to his people on holiness, on purity, on the causes of impurity and uncleanness. But after all of these rules that they should avoid sin, which is what you've been seeing in chapters 10 through 15, what are they to do when they do sin? What is to happen about the sins that have already been committed? And that's where chapter 16 comes in. Now, especially for those of you who are not Christians, I want to explain death being the result of sin very carefully. That does not mean that you or I are alive today because we haven't sinned. That does not mean that as soon as we sin, God will zap us. Rather, the Bible tells us that Adam, in his sin, was choosing for all of us. That he was put in a special federal or covenantal relationship with all of us. And that in choosing, he chose for all of us. He chose against God. He chose, he thought, for himself. But you can't healthily separate yourself from the author of life, your creator. And so Adam, who otherwise would have lived a deathless existence in the presence of God, has placed us all under the power of death. And so we, you and I, die. Not fundamentally because of smoking or drinking or lying or violence, although any of those sins may become may become the means of our death, but we die because we are in a world cursed by God because of our sin. All of that is to say that the death of Aaron's sons, and the death of Aaron himself, you see that he's in danger of, you see that in verse 2, is evidence that we need something. That warning to Aaron, he will die, shows that there is a huge problem and it must be taken seriously. God is holy and man is sinful. And you know, the story could have ended justly right there. And we would have no grounds to complain. God leaving us separated from him, liable to his judgment. But for some reason, he has not left the story there. And thereby hangs all of our hopes. You see, twice there. In verse ten is mentioned the atonement cover. That was poorly translated in some earlier translations, the mercy seat. Uh, mercy's okay, atonement is better. It was no kind of seat whatsoever. It was just it was a cover, it was a lid. Um, but that idea, the atonement cover, was there on the Ark of the Covenant with the carvings of the cherubim over it and the tablets of the Ten Commandments inside. And it's amazing when you think of it that God's meeting place with man. Was in the very symbol of his holiness and righteousness. This room separated physically and by rules, the ark with the bowing cherubim containing God's law in it, that is where not only his righteousness and holiness, but his mercy would be shown most clearly. What an amazing message we have. Are you aware that an atonement needs to be made for you? Many people don't think about that as they live their days, they make their decisions. But friend, if you're not aware of that, or if you would challenge that idea, you would say, I'm not that bad. I don't need to have a theological argument with you. You just need to have an honest conversation with your spouse, your parents, your children. Friends, none of us lives exactly as we should. Our hope will never come in our moral improvement in law-keeping. Our hope will only come if God provides a way for us, which is what we're seeing in this chapter. Brothers and sisters, pray that we take seriously the opportunities God gives us in evangelism. We have a seriously important message to share. You can make no better New Year's resolution than that you will do a better job sharing this message. This is a message people need to hear. It's the heart of everything we do. Pray for us as a congregation that we are faithful in telling this message to others. Well, you see that the relationship is the challenge. Also, notice second thing, though, that substitution is the solution. Substitution is the solution. That's what most of this chapter is about. That God, in his amazing love and graciousness, found a way. You see it reflected throughout this chapter. We'll look at components of this one by one throughout the chapter. Just... I want to call seven different things to your attention in this chapter so we can see and consider this together. First, consider the humble garments that Aaron wears. Aaron, the high priest, the humble garments that he wears. Look at verse 4. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. And then again, down in verse 23, we see when he's done, then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place. And he is to leave them there. Very interesting. You know, some religions would talk about having special clothes you put on for certain things. Mormons, Masons. Here in the Old Testament, the priests did have special clothes they wore. And the high priest, Aaron, even more special. Even more ornate and elaborate. But here, on this day... The high day of the year, Aaron puts on not his high priest's garb, nor even the garb of a regular priest. But he puts on the most humble, unornate clothing there could be. The simple white linen. As if he is presenting in symbolic terms that he has nothing to bring. He he speaks to God with no status, no authority. Yes, he wears the robes of the high priest, When he speaks to the people for God, but when he goes to speak to God for the people, he claims nothing. He wears the humblest of clothes. I wonder what you think you deserve from God. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. My Christian brothers and sisters, humility should be your trademark. Even in a competitive business, in a dog-eat-dog world of politics, in prideful academia, humility should be your trademark. Don't put yourself forward even when it's misunderstood as weakness. Praise God for families and friends who give us so many opportunities to practice humility. Kids, I wonder if you are collecting opportunities to do good, to serve in your families. My Christian friends, clothe yourself in humility. If you haven't read C.J. Mahaney's little book, Humility, there's another good thing for you to do with the free day you may have this week. It's a short book on a great subject, Humility. Or read through 1 Corinthians 6. Ask yourself, am I willing to be wronged? That's a good humility check. Pray for us as a community that we be marked by humility and forgiveness by grace. That's one thing I want you to notice. Also, though, we see in verses 12 and 13, the veiling smoke. That would be number two, the veiling smoke. Verse 12, he is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain that's going into the most holy place he is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony so that he will not die it's important for the atonement cover to be concealed because the Lord had told Moses earlier no one may see me and live ever since the fall of adam and eve in the garden their rejection from the immediate presence of god there has been need for a visible separation to exist between a holy god and sinful man as the prophet habakkuk later will say o oh lord your eyes are too pure to look on evil you cannot tolerate wrong and friends this is why jesus is all the more amazing Because we read in John 1, no one has ever seen God, but God, the only Son, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Brothers and sisters, pray that you would grow in your relationship with God and your love for him. But realize that it can be dangerous to have unrealistic expectations about our fellowship with God in this life. You know, there are some religious groups out there, sadly including some Christian ones, that will... We'll present these great claims of things that will happen to your relationship with God if you'll only, you know, tithe to them and get involved with them and be regular there. And friends, you must be very careful with that. The curse is not reversed until the Lord returns. And you can be snookered by taking advantage of some very godly desires you have. Be very careful. We understand that we are in this fallen world. And therefore, as a church, we want to be honest about our limitations as Christians and at the same time be joyous about the access that God has given us to him in Christ. But that's what the the smoking incense, the veiling smoke was doing there. A third thing I want you to notice. And this is the sort of big thing. This is the, this is the center of the chapter, if you will. At the center of God's plan to reconcile sinners to himself are various Sin offerings that we see here in this chapter. First, you see there is a bull offering for Aaron's own sins. Look in verse 6. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Then you look down at verse 6. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then look down in verse 11. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. And he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. Interesting, isn't it? Aaron is to begin by making atonement for his own sin. I mean, even Aaron, by office, the holiest man in Israel, the high priest. Even Aaron is so sinful that he needs sacrifices for his sin. He needed, as it says here in verse 6, to make atonement. For his sin, and this word atonement is Kippur in the Hebrew Kippur is in Yom Kippur day of atonement, it has various aspects of meaning to it: forgiveness, cleansing, ransom, averting god 's wrath, and all of them really are at play here in verse eleven and really throughout this chapter. This bull would die because God would not relate amicably to one who, as Aaron, was marked by sin. he would not make peace with sin ever. My friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, let me ask you this. How can sin be so important to God and so unimportant to you? But that offering was simply to prepare the way for the offering for Israel's sin as a whole that he was to make. You see it there, this goat offering for Israel's sin. Look at verse 5. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And look down in verse 7. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. Okay, so the Lord's goat, as it were, is to be sacrificed in order that the sins of the unrighteous nation of Israel would be forgiven. And when I read this, I think of what Peter wrote. In 1 Peter 3, Christ died for sins once, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And then look down in verse 16. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. So this is the picture. Israel had sinned against God. Even in the way they would bring their sacrifices, there would be undoubtedly much impurity and uncleanness and even sin. That's why a couple of times later in the chapter it mentions making sacrifices even for the sins committed in the most holy place and in the place of sacrifice. And what should be done about such things? How could so many people find forgiveness? Through atonement. Through the death of a substitute in their place. A sacrifice where they would take the penalty due to others for the benefit of the others. And why would God teach people such a thing? Because he was preparing them to understand. If you read Hebrews chapter 9, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. My friend, there's nothing you can give. There's no animal you can bring. Not even yourself that will make atonement for you. You don't need to. Christ has done that. You now simply need to imitate Christ's example by giving yourself for others in other ways. And give your body, Paul says in Romans 12, as a living sacrifice. What an interesting image. A living sacrifice. Use yourself in this life for the blessing of others. Not to earn anything, but in gratitude and thanks and hope. We should also notice another sin offering, really the distinctive one of the Day of Atonement. This is what really sets it apart. It's the scapegoat. Have you ever heard that phrase, scapegoat? This is where it comes from. Leviticus chapter 16. There in verse 7, we see there were two goats presented to the Lord. But in verse 8, we see one of these two goats, well, the, the two goats were separated by casting lots. And the scapegoat was chosen. Some translations have left the name there in Hebrew untranslated, Azazel. Uh, we don't know exactly what that means. Uh, this word in Hebrew is used three times in the Hebrew Bible. And the Hebrew Bible is most all of Hebrew literature that we have, extant, that's ancient. And that word Azazel is found three times in this chapter. It's the only place it's used in verses 8 and 10 and down in verse 26. But we know how the goat functioned, and so that's how the name has often been translated, scapegoat. He would be the one who carried off the people's sins into the wilderness, symbolically doing away with them. And it was a, a terrible fate. Sometimes people look and they think, oh, the one poor goat was sacrificed. The other the other goat gets to escape. No, that's not the image that's presented at all. This goat is led out into the wilderness and released where he will most certainly die. It, it's a symbol of, of being cut off, of being thrown out. It's a symbol that assumes death in it. So look look down in verse 10. The goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. And then down in verse 20. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place and the man shall release it in the desert. So you see what happens in the simple. The goat is confessed over. And then sent away. Look again at what he says in verse 21 is to be done. Lay both hands. On the head of the live goat. That's a symbol of the transference of the guilt from Aaron and all the people that he stands for that he represents to the goat. And so he was to confess over it and it would carry on itself their sins. So this goat bore the sin and the guilt of the Israelites instead of the Israelites themselves bearing it. And because this goat does this, the people are freed from the penalty that their sins deserved. Do you see the substitutionary background clearly then that's used in the New Testament? So so when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, in Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, in the New Testament we learn that Jesus has become our scapegoat. That's what he is. The great Puritan, Thomas Goodwin, once said, Lay hold on Jesus Christ with both hands, that is, with all your might, and then confess all your sins particularly over him, as the high priest did over the head of the live goat, who by his resurrection and ascension into heaven is escaped from death and wrath for sins, and in confessing them, transfer them from off yourselves, and implore him to take them upon himself. Discharge yourselves of them. By desiring him to take them, who knows what to do with them. Not now to suffer for them, he hath done that once perfectly forever. But to carry them away to an utter forgetfulness. And to be thy advocate to God, to remember them no more. Seeking of God, not to impute thy sins to thee, but to him that was made sin. That thou mayest be made the righteousness of God in him. And so to make an exchange with Christ. He, to take thy sins and to bestow his righteousness Upon thee. My dear Christian brothers and sisters, exult in the cross of Christ. See what God has done for us in him. Do you realize what he says here? What did David say that the Lord had done for him in Psalm 103? As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. If you are truly trusting in Christ, you can't confess a sin that God has not provided forgiveness for in Jesus. If you work at the discipline of confessing your sin... It should not lead to despair, but it should lead to rejoicing at the extent of God's love to you in Christ. That he should love you so fully and so particularly. Because the penalty for all of your sins has been taken away. All of them. And please understand that we come here to celebrate, to encourage, to instruct. We don't come here to make penalty-removing offerings. Oh, if I give God an hour or two at church, that will take care of the thing I did on Thursday. Oh, if I write a larger year in check, that will take care of the way I treated that person. Oh, if I will just agree to volunteer for this or do that. Friends, no tithes or offerings given are penalty-removing sacrifices. Christ has already purchased our forgiveness. This scapegoat was there to prepare us for that, to remind us of and point us to the sacrifice of Christ. But then, just to make the point even clearer, the Lord stresses to Moses the role of the atoning blood. And if you're taking notes of these different aspects or components here, verse, this would be number four of these, the atoning blood. Look at verse 14. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain, so into the most holy place, and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. And I've always thought it's interesting to consider, what's the use of doing that? What's the point? Nobody's in there except the high priest once a year. And even then the thing is filled with incense smoke. Who could see the blood there? But God. God would see the blood. Then again in verse 18, Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on all the horns of the altar. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. This sprinkling of the blood, both purified and redeemed the cover and the altar for their purpose of proclaiming a gracious, God-formulated, God-instructed, God-provided, God-provided, atoning sacrifice for our sins. So the sacrifice is here performed in the outer sanctuary area, only the blood is brought into the most holy place as evidence of the sacrifice. The Lord explains this a little more in the next chapter, in chapter 17, verse 11, when he says the life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life, end of quote. See, not in some magical sense, but in the penalty of sin is death, and the blood represents the death of the victim. Thank God for what he has done for us in Christ. We read in Hebrews, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once forever by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Friend, consider the seriousness of our need and the depth of our forgiveness if God has done all of this to bring about our forgiveness. That he would love and care for us so much. This is why we as a congregation are centered on this wonderful message of Jesus Christ offering himself. Do we disagree on things among ourselves? Oh, yeah. We disagree about, should I name them, the Sabbath. We disagree about the second coming. We all believe in it. We just disagree on how it's going to happen. We have a lot of disagreements among ourselves. We have no disagreements on this. Friends, this is Christianity. This is our only hope. This is our message and our joy. But in looking at the sacrificial victim, don't miss the one who offers it. And this would be the fifth thing to notice, the fifth component, the representative mediator. Look at that second sentence in verse 16. He, that's Aaron or his successor, his high priest, he is to do the same for the tent of meeting which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. Here we see that the atonement is made in the tent of meeting for the whole community of Israel. And he stresses this point in verse 17. No one is to be in the tent of meeting. And that highlights the fact that Aaron and his successors would be acting as a representative for all the others. This role was an awesome one. The high priestly duties of the day of atonement were the the sacrifice, I mean rather the climax of the sacrificial year. They would practice for these things for a week. Tradition tells us the high priest would be separated and he would literally go through his moves day after day to make sure he did this just right. And then when it was all over and he had finished it without dying, he held a party for his friends. That's what tradition tells us. He would have a feast after he returned safely from these annual duties. Well, in verse 24, he completes his duties by offering the rams. He sent the rams mentioned up in verses 3 and 5. Well, he shall then bathe himself, verse 24, with water in a holy place, put on his regular garments. Then he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering, that's the ram, for himself. And the burnt offering, the ram for the people, to make atonement for himself and the people. He shall also burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar. Interesting that in all of this, the Lord has one person to act for the good of the whole. Why would he do that? Because he's teaching them. He's teaching them. And all of this, he's teaching them what his plan is. Friend, if you're not a Christian, I wonder, can you conceive of someone doing something this wonderful for you? Someone blessing you like this? This is what the Bible tells us Christ has done for us. For this reason, Christ is the mediator, Hebrews 9, of a new covenant. That those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. My Christian brothers and sisters, how much Christ must care about us. Do what he has done. I pray that we will follow his example as far as we are able. Not in providing atonement. But in using ourselves up for the good of others. In mediating the good things of God that he has given to us to those around us. We perform our duty as a kingdom of priests. There are, of course, no longer high priests or certain Christians who are priests. No, the New Testament is clear that we are we are all priests. We're praying for others. We're sharing the gospel with them. We're, we're caring for them. We're modeling God. We're teaching as we have opportunity about the great news of the gospel. See, this is what we are about as a church together and individually, bearing witness to the truth about Jesus Christ to the world around us bearing witness to the truth about the only true mediator between God and man. Notice another thing. Number six. These sacrifices are to be performed annually. Look at verse 29. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or an alien living among you, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then, before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting in the altar, and for the priests, and for all the people of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. So that's a summary of the day. Note particularly what he tells them in verse 29. This is to be annually repeated. Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. Interesting that it was to be repeated annually. You see, other nations had sacrifices in the ancient Near East. Israel was not unique in this. But other nations would do these kind of sacrifices when things weren't going well. Then they would do sacrifices to try to appease the gods. God's. Interesting. This is an annual sacrifice. Every year, same time. The regularity and repeatedness of it shows that they were in a state of sin. They were always in sin, and it had to be done again and again. Why? The writer of the Hebrews tells us in the New Testament, because none of these animals actually made a perfect sacrifice. None of them actually took away sins. This regular practice emphasized that sins separate us from God, but that God provides a way of access, and that forgiveness is essential for that access. So, So this was to be a regular reminder for them, a regular proclamation to them, as each year the high priest served as a mediator between the people and God, and, as it says here, made atonement for them. This is what all the other regular sacrifices through the year performed by other priests were pointing to. And in turn, it all pointed to what Jesus Christ uniquely did. As we do in our priestly task of praying for others and sharing the gospel. At all points, we point to Christ's work. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. My friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, do you have another solution for your sin? Is there any other way you think you'll be able to face a holy God than by him providing a way? What responsibility do you feel for those sins that you have fathered and nurtured and cuddled in your own life? My Christian brothers and sisters, all this elaborate work was required again and again, year after year after year after year. And every time it was repeated, it pointed to the work of Christ. And now that Christ's work has been done, it need never be repeated. In fact, the idea that Christ's work needs to be repeated is a misunderstanding that goes to the very heart of what Christ was doing. Because the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 9 and 10 makes it clear that it does not need to be repeated because it was complete. We read, He has appeared once forever at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Oh, the joy we have of knowing that that work is done. I mean, it is completed. We don't need to go to bed tonight wondering... Can we be saved or are we saved if we are trusting in this one? I've heard it said that every other religion in the world is the religion of do. But that Christianity alone is the religion of done. Friends, we don't have anything here to manipulate you to hold over your head to make you give, to make you attend. You need to fill up this many stickers in order to have a chance of going to heaven. No, the whole message of Christianity is that Christ has done it. And it's ours now to rejoice in that and to pray and trust and believe in what he has done for us. So next Sunday we're going to have the Lord's Supper. Do we understand that to be Christ being sacrificed again? No. No, Hebrews 9 and 10 couldn't be clearer. That is the very contrast with the Old Testament sacrifices. No, not at all. Well, so what are we doing? We are celebrating that that once for all time sacrifice has been made. And we can be confident as we come to the Lord's table that he gave us to remember his sacrifice, that we have been forgiven by his sacrifice. That's why you'll notice an emphasis on the sacrifice of Christ in our times together, because he is the center of our hopes for today and tomorrow and forever. So what does this leave for us to do? Well, seventh aspect to notice, the last sentence of the chapter. And it was done. As the Lord commanded Moses. The Israelites believed and obeyed. Some have wondered if this means that every Israelite was forgiven of every sin. I think the answer is clearly no. As Paul later wrote to the Romans, are all Israelites Israelites? No, they're not all true children of Abraham. The ones who believe the promise are the true Israelites. Those who are trusting in God's promise are the true children of Israel. But friend, more than the academic question of what about, does this mean that all Israelite sins are forgiven? Why don't you think about the question, are all of your sins forgiven? If so, why is that? And if you're not sure, how could you be sure? We read in Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus... By a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Friend, you should repent of your sins and have faith in this promise of God in Jesus Christ. This is the way to be confident that your sins are forgiven. How are you doing, brothers, sisters, at holding firm, holding unswervingly to this hope we profess? At work? In in your home? You realize that out of Christ's once-forever act, we have a constant obligation and a constant opportunity to to bear witness, to trust and obey, to show all those around us that God is utterly trustworthy. And so we keep believing and we keep obeying. Our congregation is is structured to help each other in doing this. That's why we have membership and we practice it like we do. That's why we have membership classes, because we want to help each other believe and obey. That's what we do together. Friend, you see how in all of this, Jesus Christ is prefigured in his humility in His revealing God, in His offering Himself as a sacrifice for our sins, in His atoning blood, in His mediation, not annually, but once forever. And so we should repent and believe. You see what the greatly sought thing is in all of this, that ever since our first parents in the Garden of Eden lost sight of God, we have desired again to be in the presence of God. So here in Leviticus, God was concerned to dwell among his people, but it was a difficult thing to do. The prophet Ezekiel later held out a wonderful vision of God's presence being restored when he gave them the vision at the end of his book of a restored Jerusalem. And the final line of his prophecy in the book of Ezekiel is this. The name of the city from that time on will be, the Lord is there. I love that. The Lord is there. But how will we get there? Not through having our sins disregarded by God, but by having having them rightly judged in the person of a substitute. The holiness achieved through such means of the Day of Atonement is what we might call a tentative holiness. Its very repetition showed that it was looking for something more, there needed to be something additional. Its very efficacy was based on the sacrifice of the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ is the true high priest of his people. He alone has entered behind the curtain and seen God face to face. He has brought the blood of the lamb, his own blood, into God's true presence. And he's done that in truth. And once for all time, it can never be repeated. It need never be repeated. And what good news is that? Jesus Christ is the way back into the presence of God. Now, New Year's resolutions are about to be made. Let's be honest, most of them will be about small things. They always are. And even they will be broken. Isn't it time to do something worthwhile with your life? I mean to grab a hold of something that's as big as a restored relationship with God, and as long as eternity. Your funeral will come. Maybe in 2007, maybe in 2008. As a pastor, one of my interesting jobs is asking people what they'd like sung at their funerals. Obviously, you need to do this ahead of time. (laughs) I don't know if you've thought much about it. Some of you have, and you've told me, and I've made little notes in your membership file. So, for example, example, Matt Schmucker wants abide with me, sung at his funeral. Matt, I I don't know if I'll be there, brother. But I'll tell you what I would like. I would like sung, the sands of time are sinking. It's number 21 in the beige hymnal. The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for. The fair, sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark has been the midnight, but the day spring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The king there in his beauty without a veil is seen. It were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between. The lamb with his spare army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There, to an ocean fullness, his mercy doth expand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. With mercy and with judgment, my web of time he wove. And I, the dews of sorrow, were lustered with his love. I'll bless the hand that guided. I'll bless the heart that plant, when throned where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. O oh, I am my beloved's, and my beloved's mine. He brings a poor vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand, not e'en where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory. But on my king of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand, the lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we confess that our goals are so often so small and that you have made us for so much more. We say amen this morning to your kindness extended to us in Christ. So be it, Lord. Let the guilt of all our sins be on the head of Jesus Christ. We admire your goodness, your grace, your love, your holiness, your infinite wisdom in this matter. And still more, we thank you for making us the righteousness of God. Thank you for giving us what we did not have. Thank you for giving us the lamb
0: yourself. And we thank you in his name. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Can't add anything to that. Just can't do it. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and uh, we truly do need your help uh, financially in order to get through the lean summer months. If you don't already support this uh, important radio outreach, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew, and uh, you'll be standing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash christian. or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious, penal substitutionary death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.